Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we are going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 6, Red Sky at Morning, written by Lawrence Andres and directed by Cliff Bowl. And for both the writer and director of this episode, this was the only episode of Supernatural that either of them ever worked on. And Kripke has stated publicly numerous times that he really doesn't like this episode, which, if you know how I feel about Kripke in general, is a chalk mark in the negative column for him. Because I like this episode. I think this is maybe not for the stupid ghost ship, but for the character stuff, especially with Bella. Sorry, my cat is being an asshole. (laughs) He's trying to destroy a box. Before we even get into talking about the episode itself, this is sort of a little milestone for me. This is the 50th episode of Supernatural. So this is the 50th episode of Supernatural George, if you don't count the little episode zero where I just introduce myself and talk about what I'm going to talk about on the show, that I I can't believe it. I've been here almost a year doing this now. So thank you to everybody who listens and thinks I'm worth listening to. That's really totally awesome. So thank you. And we've got 277 more to go. (laughs) Stick around. (laughs) But just talking about the fact that this is a one-off writer, it's probably not somebody who was really super involved in the writing room and probably turned in a script that got heavily edited by somebody who was part of the writing room. And I'm assuming in this case that it wasn't Kripke or he would have produced something that he liked better. You know what I mean? He, If he had that writing control over the episode, I don't know who in the writing room may have finagled the script that they got into something that was more supernatural, that was more, you know, incorporating the overall plot arcs and stuff like that, and gave it characterization touches that were important to the season as a whole. But somebody in the writing room clearly did, because... Unless this person was like an avid devotee of Supernatural and spent weeks and weeks studying the unaired episodes of season three at the time they were working on this script, season three had probably just begun to air. So either they were really, really involved or they knew stuff or were told specific plot points. And I just don't think that's how the writing room ever worked. So I'm, I'm assuming that somebody in the writing room made this script work as well as it does character-wise. Plot-wise, eh, whatever. Kripke can think whatever he likes. And as Chuck in season four, this is also on the short list of episodes of Supernatural or Chuck's own books that he disliked as well. So, you know, Bugs was on that list. This was on that list. We all know what we think about Chuck and his own writing and his own opinion of his writing. Yeah, take it or leave it. But there is a bonus special feature on the Blu-rays for this episode featuring Ivan Hayden, who was the VFX director through season seven, I think. He's talking about some of the cool shots they got to do for this episode, how they created the shot of the ghost ship sailing and 
how they created some of the effects of the ghosts in the scene where the woman is killed in her shower, like the water effects and the, the ghost being behind her and stuff, as well as that final shot between the two brothers as they splash out into each other and how involved and intensive a process that was of creating that splash effect shot. So that's available to you too. It's pretty cool. We also have casting sides for Gertrude, which includes several other pages in addition to her specific sides that involve Dean and Bella and Bella in general. So we do have 12 pages of the script. We also have storyboards for the shower scene that I just mentioned. They're not as interesting or in-depth or they don't really tell us as much about production as the storyboards from last week's episode did with the three little pigs and their whole scene. But they, they do exist and we have them. They're nine pages of storyboards. If you enjoyed last week's, you might enjoy these as well. But I personally appreciate this episode for what it tells us about Bella. It's the beginning of understanding that she has some deeper story to her than what Sam and Dean know. The fact that Sam and Dean never really put that all together by the time Bella dies, I really in my heart like to believe it's something that the Supernatural writers intended to flesh out more before the end of season three, if they'd had six more episodes in which to do that. But unfortunately, it ends up just being completely cut short. And it's disappointing the way that her character gets handled from then on out, which I'll talk about more as we watch her scenes unfold. I also appreciate this episode for the unintentional mention of Castiel, almost a full season before we ever hear his name as a character in canon. His name is part of the quote-unquote exorcism ritual that Sam is reading from. It's not really an exorcism. It's a, it conjures the other ghost that the one brother wanted vengeance against for killing him. And it's sort of like an inverse of what Sam and Dean are going through. So Sam and Dean didn't kill each other. Dean resurrected his brother. It's almost like a contrast with via Cain and Abel mythology to Sam and Dean, as will get used throughout the entire series of the show, that they are not those characters. They are not Cain and Abel, even when Dean has the mark of Cain and tries really hard to kill Sam with a, with a hammer. So, but when they have their full free will, that is not who they are and what never what they would choose. So more of a contrast than a compare. But the mention of Castiel is part of a ritual that I actually found a few years back in a book from the 14th century. So I think that sufficiently predates Supernatural to... <laughs> The exact phrase in Latin that Sam utters is a ritual that is part of this book. So I have that linked on my Tumblr tag for this episode. So we have sources for this. So yes, it wasn't foreshadowing of Cass being a character the following season. Because again, at this was still at the point where Kripke was insistent that no angels would ever be characters on this show. That heaven would never be a thing on the show. It was just words they say as part of an exorcism ritual. 
Although I do imagine that because the word got used in the show, there's somewhere on my blog or on the internet in general is a graph of Google search results over time for certain words. And Castiel was Google searched a few times around the time this episode was written. So it's almost like they had to search and make sure that they could use this phrase in the episode and like legal probably searched it to make sure there was nobody named Castiel who would complain or that they weren't infringing on any rights to anything by using this, you know, 700 year old spell (laughs) on the show. And then you see a lull and it there's no more Googling about Castiel until they go into the writer's room the following May to break season four when there's a massive uptick in searches for Castiel because they were probably looking for any lore that they could. And if you go and look at some other angel names, I bet there's a similar spike in Google search results around that time when they knew they were introducing angels and had to know which angels they could introduce. That's a topic for season four more than it is now, but because Castiel's name gets mentioned in this episode, I just always like to bring that up, that this was not foreshadowing or some long plan that they had. No, no, it was just a weird coincidence. But in canon, it's a beautiful coincidence because Sam said Cass's name and... Cass must have known who the Winchesters were by this point with Dean scheduled to go to hell. Like, I don't know if he knew that they were going to have a mission to retrieve him from hell, but he had to know that these two were playing this part in something big. And if he didn't, this may have been his first introduction to the Winchesters, calling out his name to bring this spell about, you know? (laughs) which would be hilarious. And there are some hilarious crack theories on my tag for this episode as well, based on that. Like, what on earth was Cass thinking (laughs) at this moment? Just for fun, obviously. Not serious speculation about what was really going on, but hilarious nonetheless. And while, yes, I overall enjoy this episode... Yes, there are bits about it that totally frustrate me, like how Sam gets treated for plot reasons by Gertrude. It's just, (sighs) why? Why does this always fall on Sam? This specific type of harassment always seems to fall on Sam. But it also is interesting in how it puts a similar sort of gendered but oddly aligned harassment on Dean how he gets a traditionally female shot from the feet up as he descends a staircase. That is a classic male gaze shot that's supposed to be of a beautiful woman descending the stairs, and yet it's Dean in a tuxedo in an outfit that doesn't get more traditionally masculine in modern society, descending the stairs to Bella watching him in a long shot and becoming visibly uncomfortable under her her open scrutiny and and appreciation of his beauty. The whole thing about don't objectify me, that is traditionally the woman's shot. And this happens to Dean throughout the series, that he is framed in ways that traditionally women are framed. I don't think it's feminizing Dean. I think it's casting him in 
in this light of there's more going on with him than meets the eye. That he's not just that male swagger dude bro guy. That there is more to this character. And Dean and Jensen, by playing Dean, brings that to the surface so readily. And it's I appreciate that too. But primarily, this episode is about family and toxic families who have done literal murder on one another, starting with the ship captain killing his brother for some perceived wrong that brought this whole curse about in the first place. Then there's the wronged family unto murder of everyone who sees the ghost ship and then drowns because of it, like the murdered Seaman can't get revenge against his own brother, so he's going to get revenge against everybody who he perceives as having committed the same crime. Because while the Winchesters haven't directly killed any of their family, they certainly feel guilt and responsibility towards the death of their family. Sam has felt responsible for Jess's death. He's felt responsible for his mother's death. Dean has felt responsible for his father's death. And now Sam is beginning to feel frustration at Dean for being responsible for Dean's impending death. So while they feel that responsibility and that guilt, it's not theirs. They didn't actually kill any of their family members. So they're not guilty of this specific crime. They may may feel guilty of it, but they're not. So I do appreciate that as well, because especially Dean, but even Sam, is all about saving their family. Which is where this episode opens in the then segment. Back to John's funeral pyre and gravestone, and carrying out their family legacy of killing as many evil sons of bitches as they can. We then get a quick refresher of Bella Talbot, the entire rabbit's footcase who she is. She's not a hunter. She's someone who deals in supernatural artifacts for very wealthy people. And she shot Sam in the shoulder last time they met. After reminding us of Bella, they shift gears and we get from the opening episode of the season, Sam berating Dean for having made such a stupid choice to sell his soul to hell, angry with him that he's not fighting harder to get out of the deal. There's Sam all cocky with the rebuilt cult, conjuring up the Crossroads demon, saying there's nothing he wouldn't do to save Dean from this, and truly believing that he could talk this Crossroads demon out of the deal. Her saying, nope, there's nothing you can do to get out of this one, and Sam shooting her in the head. And then we cut to now. We open on a pier where a woman is running and stops at a water fountain to check her pulse or her time. And gosh, she's got an old iPod strapped to her arm. How uh, nostalgic, I guess, (laughs) to 2007 when we always had to carry iPods around with us in addition to our phones. While she's drinking water, lightning flashes off out at sea and she sees the outline of a ghost ship flashed in the lightning and is distressed by this she closes her eyes and opens them and then the ship is gone like did she actually see this is she hallucinating this like is this a trick of the light she tries to convince herself it was nothing even though she's still distressed and she puts her earbuds back in and turns around and runs home 
where she gets in the shower and we get more water shots. There's a lot of water in this episode, obviously. We see this, the shadow of the ghost on the on the wall while she's not paying attention. She hears something weird, opens the shower door, looks around the bathroom and sees nothing out of order, shuts the door again, goes back to her shower. At which point the ghost that we saw earlier or the person that we saw earlier, because we can't tell it's a ghost yet other than it's got, you know, magical water fingers, grabs her from behind in the shower and we see her pressed against the shower doors a couple times before she slowly sinks out of the shot. And then we get the title card. After the title card, we get information that leads us to believe that this is not long after the end of the last episode where Sam shot that crossroads demon. Because the way Dean opens their conversation as they're driving is, so I've been waiting since Maple Springs, which is where they had their last case. And, you know, this case doesn't take place very far away from the previous case in New York. And then now this one is in Massachusetts. So right next door to one another. It occurred to me that it's been a while since I've mentioned the fictionality of some of the locations that they use in the show. And this week's episode is no exception. Sea Pines, Massachusetts does not exist in our universe. I intended to point this out in every episode, whether or not the place is real or fictional or how it differs from our reality. When your town or a town you know is portrayed on the show and everybody jokes, oh yeah, it looks nothing like it does in reality because, well, they filmed the whole thing in Vancouver. Well, clearly their universe is very different from ours in very distinctive ways. And so for me, it sort of adds to my suspension of disbelief and my ability to keep suspending my disbelief when I remember how many of these episodes are set in places that just don't exist at all in our universe and are completely fictional, like Sea Pines, Massachusetts. But... Dean is basically saying to Sam, I've been waiting for you to tell me, you know, what's up. Sam tries to play dumb, like, oh, I don't know, it's not your birthday. Like, Sam goes on to play dumb and innocent, even while Dean is saying exactly what Sam should have expected. Dean confronts him with the fact that there was a bullet missing from the cult. Like, even though they know how to make an unlimited supply now, it seems to be the kind of thing that they're keeping track of. At least Dean is, and Sam may not have realized that, but he's getting it now, and I have it paused on his face, and he just looks like, man, I just want to punch him right here, because it's like, stop even trying to hide and lie. Your brother's not that stupid, Sam. But Dean goes on to accuse him of exactly what Sam did, that he went after the crossroads demon, and Dean told him not to do that. Sam tries to play this off casually while Dean is very angry. He's like, you could have gotten yourself killed. And Sam's like, I didn't, though. Dean's like, so you shot her? And Sam's like, well, she was being a smartass. And I was like, Sam, come on, we watched that episode. She may have been being a smartass, but you you did not have to shoot her. You could have earned a little goodwill with hell, but no. Anyway. So Dean is obviously very upset about this, that Sam would 
keep it from him even after the fact. He's like, well, um, does that mean I'm out of my deal then? And Sam's just snarky about, don't you think I would have mentioned that? Because he knows he did, he wasn't successful. His plan failed. He was wrong. And I don't think Sam has the power in him to admit that. Sam mentions that another demon holds the contract. So Dean's deal is still in effect. And Dean asks who. Sam says she refused to tell him. And then Dean gets mad again. Like, well, geez, I wonder who we could find that information out from. Uh, It's too bad you killed the one person we knew who we could have gotten that information from. Dean is just angry about all of this. And I don't blame him because he's scared. But then Sam goes on to say that Dean's his brother and he's going to do anything he can to save him. And he's not going to apologize for that. And Dean can't really argue that. He knows the feeling because, golly, if he wouldn't do ten times that for Sam. After that little scene, which I thoroughly believe was written and or hammered into that shape by somebody on the regular Supernatural writing staff and not a one-off walk-on writer who did one episode. We jump directly into the case of the week. The aunt of the woman who died in the shower in the cold open. She's holding her niece's picture and talking to Sam and Dean as they're interviewing her like detectives from the sheriff's department, not the police, because she's already talked to the police department, but the sheriff's department has separate detectives. And she buys this completely. (laughs) Like, okay, kind of easy to see why she'd fall as a mark to Bella to make money off of her. Sam is already the target of uncomfortable vibes from Miss Ms. Case, as she corrects him, notifying Sam had called her Mrs. Case. So she's confirming to him that, yes, she's single and ready to mingle, I guess. But Sam pushes through that, talks about her niece, who she found drowned in the shower. Yeah, she's confused about how someone can drown in the shower, even though that's what the coroner's report said. And then Sam goes on to ask other normal investigative questions like, did she seem upset or nervous about something in the previous days before her death? And that triggers something for Ms. Case here. And she's like, you're working with Alex, aren't you? Sam and Dean have no idea who the hell Alex is, but they stumble through, oh, yeah, yes. But as soon as Dean confirms that, yes, they're working with Alex, she becomes much more relaxed and open with them. And she's like, Alex has been such a comfort, you know, but I thought the case was solved. Meaning Alex has provided her with an explanation for the events that happened, even though they are bizarre and inexplicable seeming on the surface. Ms. Case then goes on to say that after they confirm that, no, the case is definitely still open, she's kind of, hmm, yeah, well, mm, about that. But then goes on to describe her niece seeing that ship right before she died, said it vanished right before her eyes, and she had been frightened by it. And Gertrude's like, do you think it could have been a ghost ship? And yet again, Sam and Dean are knocked off balance. They're not used to people being that open to this sort of weirdness. As they're standing there kind of gobsmacked, Gertrude then confirms that, yes, Alex thinks it could be a ghost ship. 
And then when Sam confirms that, yeah, that, that maybe she reaches a hand out and like caresses Sam's finger enticingly and Sam becomes very visibly uncomfortable about this. But she has offered them more information if there's anything else she can answer for them or do for them. So Sam's got to play up this act. He's got to at least not act awful to this woman for this. Meanwhile, Dean has got fodder to taunt Sam with over this old woman being into him. And as they're walking along the harbor where all the boats are parked, Sam confirms that, yes, this wouldn't be the first, you know, turning it back to the case. This wouldn't be the first ghost ship spotted around here. Every 37 years, the same ship appears and people have these weird sightings. For a while, people will see this ship, and then a few hours later, they will mysteriously drown on dry land. So their goal now is to identify the ship to see what about it might be causing these weird drownings. And identifying a three-masted clipper ship off the coast of Massachusetts that may have wrecked or sunk is going to take some doing because there's over 150 of them out there. (laughs) And then we get Dean having his classic little crisis moment over believing his car was stolen from the parking spot. He gets his little moment of comedy before Bella relieves him by telling him what actually happened to it, that she had it towed because it was in a towaway zone. And Dean's like, it was not. And she's like, it was when I was done with it implying that she hotwired the car and moved it to a towaway zone and then reported it to get it towed. So she's the first person we have confirmation of having driven baby outside of Sam and Dean and John, I guess, you know, was his car first. We get this beautiful scene out of it, but <laughs> uh, I would not wish this on anyone, especially Dean. Sam's the one who puts the pieces together that she is the mysterious Alex who's working with Gert. They find out more about her business, which extends to selling little old ladies like Gert charms and holding seances for them to communicate with their dead cats. Dean identifies it as basically being a con, and she's like, no, the comfort I provide them is very real. Sam yells out the line, how do you sleep at night? Meaning, you know, you you do all these awful things that we know about from the episode with the rabbit's foot. And she replies casually as she walks away, naked on silk sheets, rolling in money, which good for her, you know, but Bella uses this moment to give them a little warning to stay out of her business, to stay out of her way. She's not happy that Gert is withholding payment on the check because she knows what the case really is. She knows it's really a ghost ship, but Gert didn't know that. Gert thought the case was solved, that she'd taken care of the ship or whatever, and Bella's just using her to get information so she can go for her bigger prize, the Hand of Glory that she has not told Sam and Dean about yet, because she doesn't want them to interfere in another one of her sales like they did with the rabbit's foot. Even though people are getting killed because of it, she doesn't care. She just wants to make her money. And she sends them off to fetch their car before the police find the arsenal in their trunk. 
she thinks that this is enough to stop Sam and Dean from solving the case. And oh boy, she's mistook about them still. As she walks away, Dean says to Sam, can I shoot her? And Sam regretfully says, not in public. <laughs> like, he wants to shoot her just as bad. I mean, Sam reminded her that she shot him the last time they met. And she's like, I barely grazed you. Such a drama queen. And no, he's still pissed about that. Meanwhile, later that evening, we come across another man who's clearly getting ready for bed. He's wearing his pajama pants and brushing his teeth or washing his face in the sink. But he's got the sink water running and he hears a noise. We see a dark figure pass by the doorway to his bathroom. He doesn't see it, though. He turns off the water and still hears water running, but it's in the bathtub, where his tub is now filled with this sickly-looking green water, dark seawater-looking stuff. He turns off the tap, trying to figure out how it got turned on, and then he tries to drain the tub. The little lever that drains the tub is broken. Nothing happens when he pulls it up. So he's bent over the tub, looking into this gross water, trying to figure out what to do. Shockingly, doesn't reach his arm in like most people do in these sorts of show scenes in horror shows, <laughs> like they did in Dead in the Water. He doesn't reach his arm in, but an arm reaches out of the water and grabs him by the throat. Dark veins appear on his forehead and his eyes roll up in his head and we have to assume he's become the next victim of our creepy ghost ship ghost. We open the following morning as our victim's brother is being interviewed, telling the interviewer that the police said his brother drowned. We pan back and see that the interviewer is Bella, who has a few more questions about the ghost ship this man's brother saw. Sam and Dean come in, flash their badges, and tell her she's done with her interview and of course, not wanting to cause a scene when the actual police are just standing right over there, Bella gets going while she still can. So while Sam and Dean get more details from the brother about the ship that they both saw because they were night diving together, and now they have more description of the boat, down to the rigging and the sails and the angel figurehead on the front of the boat, which I find a nice touch too, also purely coincidental, an angel figurehead at the front of the ship in an episode where we first hear the name Castiel. <laughs> Months before they even began to consider having angels join the show. As they're asking him these questions, we see Bella off in the distance, talking to two police officers, and then she points towards Sam and Dean, and they realize their time is almost up, too. They're about to have the police sicked on them by Bella who's probably telling them those aren't real detectives or something. Bella comes over to where they're loading their salt shotguns down the road and asking them why, why they're even still there, because they got enough information to ID the ship. And Sam and Dean are like, because uh, that guy saw the ship, which means he's in danger, which means we're going to try and save his life. And Bella just does not understand this. Dean says to her, yeah, well, we have souls, so we're going to do what we can to try and save this person. And Bella's like, you know, he's cannon fodder. You can't save him in time, and, and you know that. Dean and Bella have a little showdown of their own moral compasses. 
Dean's like, how'd you get like this? Did your daddy not give you enough hugs? And she throws it right back at him. Did you, did your daddy not give you enough? Which is kind of creepy knowing the history that what we'll eventually learn drove Bella into this life. Gross, I have to say, in hindsight. But also the sort of thing that Dean would have never said had he known. He would have understood completely. But of course, they're not going to make it easy on any of us. Dean is still confident that he's on the moral high ground. The fact that they do this to save people. And she's just like, no, you you do this for vengeance and because you're obsessed with it. I do a job for money that I get paid. Which of those is healthier to you, do you think? And it's clear she may know a little bit about Sam and Dean, but oh boy, she really does not know Dean if that's her assessment of him, that he only does this out of obsession and vengeance because he left that a long time ago, you know? <laughs> he was the one from the beginning of season one who was like, yeah, we got to save dad. The deal that with the demon doesn't matter. Getting our revenge doesn't matter if we all die. This is about saving our family, and this is about saving innocent people. That's how he got Sam to participate in that whole first season. Like, <laughs> Sam kept wanting to leave? Well... <laughs> Dean was like, come on, man, we got to save these people's lives. Sam was able to walk away from that multiple times. Dean could not. Of all the hunters she could have accused of being only in it for vengeance and obsession, Dean is not that guy. So Sam and Dean are parked outside. Sam's researching the case as best he can, looking into these two brothers. Like, why would they be targets of this ghost ship? And they don't understand why they would or why Sheila would. They seem like nice, upstanding citizens. A couple speeding tickets is their only crime on their record. And they inherited their father's fortune of $112 million six years ago. Dean's like, yeah, well, it's pretty nice. But while they're distracted with this, the guy comes out of his house and confronts them. Like, hey, what are you doing? Why are you sitting there staring at my house? They get out of the car. He accuses them of not being police. And they're like, no, we are cops. (laughs) But he's like, not dressed like that. Not in that crappy car. And Dean's offended again on behalf of his car. They insist that they're there to keep an eye on him because he might be in danger. But this guy is not listening to reason. Sam's like trying to calm the situation. Just let us explain. And he's not having it. He's like, I'm going to call the cops and get this taken care of. Sorry, sir. That's the wrong call. He jumps in his car like he's going to speed out of there and to safety or whatever. But as soon as he gets to his gate, before he can even get the gate open, the car stalls out. Dean runs to go get the salt gun from the car while Sam tries to jump the fence. And we see the ghost but we see him very clearly this time in the back seat and then in the front seat. And then he touches the guy and he just starts spitting out water like he's drowning on dry land. Before either of them can get there, though, the guy has already drowned. The ghost is still in the front seat. Dean shoots it with salt gun, so it dissipates, but it's too late. The guy's already dead. They're listening to a local weather report advising that there's going to be some 
severe thunderstorms coming in from the northwest. When Dean turns off the radio and reminds Sam that they can't save everybody. And Sam's like, yeah, so do you feel better now saying that? And Dean's like, nope, this is not comforting news to either of them. Sam replies with, it's just that lately I feel like I can't save anybody. Which for Sam is a different twist on his thing from last season about how the more people he can save, the the more he can save himself from whatever dark destiny he felt. Is he going to go dark side? Is he going to become evil? Is that why John warned Dean he might have to kill him? Like the more good he can do, the more good he can be as a result. And right now, yeah, knowing that that's Sam's mindset about himself, even after he doesn't feel that imminent threat of Dean might have to kill me, I might go dark side because the demon who was going to inflict that fate on him is dead now. So I don't think Sam really understands it himself, why Dean is so worried about him. But he's still got this mindset of that's how he does good in the world. By him being good and doing good, he can feel good about himself. And we'll learn later on that, you know, that's pretty much been his mindset about his himself since he was little and feeling unclean and all of that. So that is an inherent thing in Sam. And yeah, it's been a while since he's had a pure win and really actually just been able to save someone without there being massive losses involved as well. The next day, we learn where Sam and Dean are staying in town. Not a motel, but an old-timey abandoned house where they're squatting. And Bella has found them while they're researching, trying to figure out what ship this could be or how to stop it. She comes bearing gifts, including the name of the ship and the history behind it. A member of the ship's crew was accused of treason and was hanged after a less than fair trial, shall we call it? (laughs) And he was 37 years old at the time, hence the 37-year cycle of these sightings and deaths associated with it. The sailor was cremated, but his right hand was cut off and made into a hand of glory. Dean makes an inappropriate joke about, you know, I think I got one of those at the end of my Thai massage last week. And Sam comes back with, no, that's a very powerful magical artifact. And Dean confirms, yes, it's also remains that we can destroy. It's what's probably tying this person to his vengeance quest. Bella says she knows exactly where the Hand of Glory is, but she needs their help to get it. It's in a museum exhibit, and she can't get it alone for some reason. I guess she needs their thieving skills. Maybe that's why she hired the two terrible thieves to swipe the rabbit's foot from their storage unit. Maybe she's not good at the thievery end of it, like lockpicking and sneaking around and like... I don't know why. I think it would probably been easier for her to break into this museum by herself rather than involve Sam and Dean. But she also knows she can't get them off her back and that they're not just going to pick up and leave town. And they will continue to bumble into her side of things, probably to her disadvantage, unless she uses them this way. 
that finally brings us to the scene I mentioned at the beginning of the episode where Bella's all dressed up fancy and she's demanding that Sam and Dean also dress up equally fancy to crash a benefit dinner or party at the museum where the Hand of Glory is on display. In order to get in, they had to use Gert because she is a donor to the museum and had tickets, which otherwise they would not have been able to get. I mean, not like they couldn't have found some other way to sneak into this party, but she presents that as their easiest route in. So while Sam has already taken Gert along to the benefit, Bella is waiting there for Dean to get into his tux, and he hates it. Dean's like, come on, I look ridiculous after this very feminized shot of him coming down the stairs, scrolling slowly up his body as Bella ogles him. She's like, not exactly the word I'd use. Not ridiculous. Because yes, it's Jensen Ackles in a tux. That's not ridiculous. But he's uncomfortable. And he's uncomfortable for having been made to do this and to have to play her date. She then tells him, oh, we should have angry sex when this is all done. And she gets to see something. His facial reaction, his little face journey, as he absorbs this comment, uncomfortably crosses his arms. He's not used to, you know, he knows he's an attractive guy, but he's not used to being objectified in this way. And he says so, don't objectify me. And then he still pretends to be uncomfortable and upset about this whole situation. But as soon as he's past her, as soon as he walks past her as they're leaving the house where they're squatting, he kind of gives like a little satisfied smile, like off to the side. And you blink and you miss it. But yeah, he's pleased that she finds him that attractive. And it's a little confidence boost to him. He can objectively see that she's very attractive and looks very nice in her fancy getup. But he's glad to think that, yeah, he's on that level, even though he was uncomfortable about the whole situation. So Bella got to see all of that except his little satisfied smile at the end. So I think she learned something about Dean as well, that he's not quite the guy that she had him pegged to be. There's clearly a valet out front, and we can see the Impala parked outside the front door of the museum as Bella and Dean enter. And it's like, oh my God, did he actually trust his car to a valet too? Boy, that's a lot of tension for Dean regarding his car in one episode. We don't really see what happens to it as a result, but one can assume. As they walk in, Bella realizes Dean is chewing gum and She calls him out on it, tells him to at least try and act like he's lived this life before. Dean takes his gum, looks around kind of shifty, and sticks it to the side of a giant champagne fountain. And, like, Dean, I mean, you could have stuck it underneath a table or something, but you stuck it right to the side of the friggin' fountain. (laughs) Like, how gross can you be? And Bella just looks like she's her soul's about to leave her body in that moment. <laughs> but they power through it. Sam and Gert, we see them entering the room where Dean and Bella are now having a drink at a bar. And Gert is still all over Sam, just running a hand down his back. Sam tries to remind her that they're there on business. And she's like, 
business can be pleasure too. She's really enjoying just being there in Sam's company, but man, she's handsy. So Sam is over there trying to encourage Dean and Bella to just get on with it. Be quick about this. He doesn't want to, you know, how long is this going to take? Because he doesn't want to put up with this any longer than he has to. And meanwhile, they're just like, you know, these things take time. So Dean gets to taunt Sam a little bit more about his date with Gert. He's like, oh, yeah, I want all the details in the morning. And Sam is not having it with the taunting and not having it with his date. And even points out what I did, that they always can find another way to crash a party. And Dean's like, yeah, but this way is easier and a lot more fun because he gets to watch Sam squirm this way. And as Dean and Bella walk away, Gert comes over and hands Sam a glass of champagne, which he downs like alcohol is his only saving grace in this circumstance. Dean and Bella move off while Sam is trapped there with Gert, and case the place. They see the security people at every door. They have their little quiet discussion about it, how they're not going to just be able to walk into whatever room they want to, because these are not just private security dudes. These are probably off-duty state troopers, professional police officers, that they're not going to be able to just finagle their way around. Bella asks Dean if she's got, if he's got a plan on how they can get upstairs to where they know that the Hand of Glory is on display, locked behind layers of security. And Dean's like, I'm thinking. And she immediately starts taunting him like, oh, don't strain yourself. And the legend's so much more than the man, insulting him for not already having a plan when she's the one who held every card going into this scenario. And Dean's like, well, if you've got any ideas, I'm all ears. And then instead of telling him her plan, she just faints in his arms and leaves it up to him to come up with a believable story to get them upstairs. Dean's first instinct is to call over a waiter saying, uh, my wife has a severe shellfish allergy. There's no crab in those things, is there? And the waiter says, no. So then Dean just grabs one off the plate and is like, oh, yeah, they're, they're delicious. Like, because that would not be an excuse for her having fainted. But then the police officer comes over, or the security guard, and asks what the trouble is. And Dean's like, oh, you know, my wife, the champagne just went right to her head. Dean asks him if there's any place he can lay her down while she, quote, gets her sea legs back. Maritime Museum, painting of a boat above the guard's head. Of course, that's the phrase he'd come up with. But the guard looks around, looks upstairs, and then tells Dean to follow him. He picks Bella up and carries him up the stairs, and the police officer leaves them in a little office room. Unfortunately, not the room where the Hand of Glory is being stored, but a place where they're at least closer and where there's less security. Dean is upset with Bella. Once the security guard leaves, he's like, Next time, give me a little heads up about what your plan is. And she's like, I didn't want you thinking. You're not very good at that. And Dean just is shocked that she would say this and that she's still being antagonistic toward him, even though he got them into this better situation here. And she taunts him about not being able to come up with a witty rejoinder to her taunt. And finally, he just comes out with screw you which doesn't seem like that much of an insult, 
compared to what we know he could have said. But for the CW, this was a new language. The FCC had only passed lessened regulations over the swear words you could use on primetime television a few months prior to this episode being written. Before that, you could not say, screw you, on a network primetime. So this is new, which kind of adds an extra layer of hilarity to the Ghost Facers episode later this season, post-writer strike, where all their words are bleeped out and we know that they're saying, like, all the good curse words. But even this was a big deal, to be able to say, screw you, and to be able to say, crap, and several of the other words that they use that are we don't consider swear words. I mean, they're pseudo-swear words, in America anyway. So that's actually a big deal that he was allowed to say that here. And again, we can laugh about this whole broadening of the FCC's allowable words list when we get to ghost facers, but that's not for another few weeks. (laughs) So after insulting Dean's intelligence and telling him not to think because he's not good at that, she sends him off to room 235, tells him that the Hand of Glory is in a locked glass case with a wired alarm, and I'm sure you can handle that, you know. And he just, like that, (laughs) back at her as he leaves the room. Meanwhile, downstairs, Sam has got an armful of Mrs., no, Ms. Case, who's probably had a few too many drinks and is getting even more handsy and more forward with him. So while Sam is getting groped downstairs, Dean is working on the alarm system for the case upstairs, and Bella is wandering around the office where she's supposedly supposed to be passed out, and picks up a tiny little ship in a bottle. When she's interrupted by a knock on the door, it's the security guard asking if she's okay. So she's got to think fast on her feet and comes up with a rather hilarious lie that's going to come back and bite Dean in a minute. But she pulls one shoulder off her evening gown and musses herself a little bit, like she and Dean had been in there making out. He asks her if she's feeling better and is if they're done with the room yet, and she tells him, no, could we have a few more minutes? And then as he walks away, she, like, playfully giggles, as if Dean was in there with her. The guard kind of has like a half smile, like these crazy kids, and just walks away. As the guard walks away, Dean comes running into him. He's like, oh, yeah, nature called. Thank you for looking after my wife. And the guard just laughs to himself like, oh, yeah, she's she's being looked after all right. Meaning he thinks that Dean's being cheated on by his drunk wife in the other room. (laughs) Like, at least it's completely distracting to the security guard guy, even if it makes Dean, again, look like an idiot. Dean gets back and finally feels like he's gotten it one over on Bella. He pulls the hand out of his pocket, wraps it in his pocket square, and tucks it back in his pocket. Bella offers to put it in her purse and Dean's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I do not trust you. And she's like, oh, it would be less in, less conspicuous in my purse than it would in your pocket. And he's like, no, 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 no. Don't need your kind of help. 
Downstairs, Gert is practically passed out on Sam. But as Sam dances with Gert to the never-ending song, she's like, do you think that the brothers' deaths are connected to Sheila's? And Sam's like, yes, yes, I do. She's just drunkenly rambling at him, sort of like, well, I think they had it coming in a biblical sort of way. And he's like, what do you mean by that? Gert tells Sam that she'll whisper it in his ear. So she pulls him close and Sam's like trying, you know, like, gotta hear it. But oh my God, no, I'm trying to get away too. And she whispers in his ear that the boy's father did not die natural. And the rumors were always that the boys had killed him, except nothing was ever proven. He's like, well, this is definitely more information than we had before. Sam asked if Sheila had any connection to the brothers. Gert's like, no. But then he asked her if she had any tragedy in her life. And she says, yes, she was in a car accident. She survived, but her cousin was killed. That's when Dean and Bella come back in. Bella goes over to Gert and pulls her away to get her home. And Sam is finally relieved. As Bella leaves, she calls back over her shoulder, I'll see you at the cemetery. Like she's going to show up for the ritual to destroy the hand. Except, of course, she never had any intention of doing that. They get to the car, Sam and Dean, and Sam's like, yeah, please just tell me that you got the thing. I didn't get groped all night for nothing. Dean pulls the handkerchief out of his pocket, unwraps it, and is like, oh, hell, I'm going to kill her. Because the hand isn't there. It's the little glass bottle with a tiny ship inside of it. Bella picked his pocket at some point and replaced it with that. Dean, how could you let yourself get pickpocketed? Come on, hun. So she just makes Dean look bad over and over again. And that's one thing that Kripke said was that they really had made a mistake in introducing her as a character by making her make the boys look bad on one too many occasions. And I'd venture to say maybe about eight or nine too many occasions if they wanted to have any hope of making her a character that they could offer any sort of compassion to in the narrative. And yes, they do offer it in the narrative, but Sam and Dean never know the story. And I honestly love her character because she is so good at making them look stupid over and over again when we know that Sam and Dean are not stupid. (laughs) But she's so good at throwing them off balance in great ways. And Kripke was always lamented the fact that they kind of overdid it on that. And I'm not, I'm only upset that they never actually were able to get Sam and Dean to know her backstory. Like, why all of this? And that they ended up just thinking she was just a terrible person. Did it for greed or whatever. Lamentations over things I cannot change. We then cut to Bella at the pier. And she's clearly sold the hand and she's gotten back in her car with a little briefcase full of cash. She thinks it's all... Game over. She won. She finally got, you know, won over on the Winchesters and used them for her benefit. Except while she's sitting there, oops, because the the curse has not been lifted, she sees the ghost ship. 
and only when it's technically too late for her does she realize just how badly she screwed herself over. And she's only got one recourse to run back to Sam and Dean to beg them for help. Back at their little house where they've been squatting, Dean's looking at the stupid little boat in the bottle and angrily going on about what he's going to do to Bella. He's not going to kill her. His slow torture is the way to go. And Sam's just telling him to calm down. And Dean's like, can't believe she got another one over on us. And Sam corrects him and says, you. And Dean's like, what? And Sam's like, she got one over on you, not us. And Dean's like, thank you. That's very helpful. I think it's just Sam's little way of getting back at Dean after the Gert groping. (laughs) And Dean's taunting him about that. Because I'd venture to say that the last time they met, they traded getting one over on each other pretty well. (laughs) She may have walked away with their 40 grand or whatever in lottery tickets. But Dean also got one over on her and forced her hand into destroying the rabbit's foot rather than letting them all be cursed. So he saved them, but also, you know, they lost all their cash that they'd won. But yeah, Sam was just being a jerk there the way Dean had been a jerk to him all night. So fair is fair. So Bella shows up on their doorstep and is like, let me explain. She comes completely clean. I had a buyer lined up for it the moment I knew it existed. You were just convenient cover. And I always intended to do this. And Dean, like, standing behind her, like, makes a gun hand toward her head. Like, I knew it. You just, he thinks he's able to get through to her a little tiny bit in this episode. Which bodes poorly for the next meeting they have. But we'll get there in a few more episodes. But let's get through this one first. She confesses that she needs their help. Because there's no way she could get the hand back in time. And Dean's like, in time for what? And she's like, I saw the ship. I'm going to die if we can't figure out a way to break this curse. Dean takes that information and he's like, well, I knew you were a con artist and, you know, all this other terrible stuff about you. But boy, I didn't think you could sink any lower. And she's like, what on earth are you talking about? And Sam explains that they know why the ghost ship targets people. It only targets people who have killed family members. So Dean leans over her shoulder and is like, so who'd you kill? Daddy? Little sister? After Sam had described that the original brothers, one brother had killed the other on the boat. And that's what the curse was all about. Very Cain and Abel is the phrase Sam uses. Which, again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, yes, even though Sam and Dean are often paralleled to Cain and Abel, and even when they go through with the whole literal mark of Cain, and they're told one of them has to sacrifice the other or whatever, as Dean has refused to sacrifice Sam up to this point, even though John said he will have to. Like, that's been a part of this story since the beginning here. Sam and Dean always find a way to subvert that story, to break it, to save each other instead of killing each other. Which, yeah, that's a much better story, isn't it? But they don't know what Bella's backstory is. They don't know what family members she killed. We will find that out 
Just not in this episode. But Bella asks them for help. She's like, you can't just leave. You've got to help me. And Dean's like, yep, sorry. Enjoy what's left of your life because, you know, it's going to be a few hours here. And they were going to pack up and leave because the hand is gone. There's nothing else they can do, right? But she's very upset. She does not want to die here, obviously. Sam asks her what she did. And she's like, you wouldn't understand. No one did. And we will learn in another episode that, you know, she made a deal for her with a demon to kill her father who was molesting her and possibly other family members who may have been in on it. But we know for sure her father figure who she had killed when she was like 14, which horrifying, but she doesn't feel like she wants to share that with Sam and Dean. She's just like, you know, you've got to help me. She is like, never mind, I'll find a way to take care of it myself, like always. Dean tells her, you know, you sold the only thing that could have saved your life, right? And she's like, yeah, I'm aware. And then Sam comes in with, well, maybe not the only thing. So they take her out to the graveyard where Sam sets up a ritual on on a tombstone. Almost as soon as he gets all the candles lit and gets everything poured out for the spell... The sky opens up and it begins to pour and storm. Right before that, Bella asks, do you think this is going to work? And Dean's like, almost certainly not. So Sam starts reading the conjuring spell and I'm amazed that the candles stayed lit as long as they did, but they go out as he's reading and he stutters for a moment and then keeps right on with the Latin. Bella looks like she's about to bolt and Dean's like, no, stay close. The murder ghost appears right behind Dean and Bella calls out a warning and it flings Dean away to get to Bella. The ghost touches Bella and she starts spewing out water. Dean rushes over to her and advises Sam to read faster. As soon as he finishes the spell, the clouds part, the rain stops, and there's like creaking ship noises as the sailor's brother who had him hanged, appears behind him. The hanged sailor says to his brother, you know, you hanged me, your own brother. And the captain apologizes, like, twice. And then the hanged man runs into him physically, and this is the scene that's discussed in the VFX bumper to this episode where they talk about how they constructed the scene of the two splashing each other apart. You hear the whispery sounds of spiritual activity on this show, but also, as we will know next season, angel activity on this show. The whispery... It almost sounds like somebody saying a spell or something. So you wonder if Castiel was there doing this, because that was the ritual that invoked his name. So, hmm. Regardless, whatever. The spell has caused these two brothers to finally meet again after 150 years or whatever of every 37 years killing people who've killed their family members. The curse has been broken. They're both freed now, and so is Bella. The next morning, Bella comes back to the house they're crashing in and gives them each 10 grand. Her explanation is she doesn't like to be in anyone's debt. Dean's like, so what, poning up 10 grand's easier than just apologizing? Sam's like, Dean, we don't know where this money's been. And Dean's like, well, I know where it's going. 
We see them later that night in the car. And Sam's like, seriously, Atlantic City? But we return to the conversation they were having at the beginning of the episode in the car. Dean's like, I've been thinking about what you said about the crossroads demon. And if the situation had been reversed, I would have done the same thing. Dean tells him he's not blind. He sees what Sam's going through because of this deal. But he's trying to tell Sam that he's going to be okay. You'll keep hunting. You're stronger than me. And Dean tells him, you'll get over it. And then offers an apology for having put Sam through this. And Sam is just fed up with that. And kind of ironic that Dean would use the phrase, you're stronger than me. Because that's going to be Sam's lament through season four once Ruby gets her hooks in him. That Dean's not strong enough. Only I'm strong enough to get this job done. And yeah, that's going to be his downfall in season four. And the fact that Dean's using it as a line here early in season three to try and convince Sam that everything's going to be okay just has a little twist of irony to it now, doesn't it? It's also interesting that Dean tells Sam that he should go on and continue hunting after he's gone, which is sort of the opposite information that Sam asks of Dean at the end of season five when he's going to go to the cage forever, he believed at the time. But Dean basically tells Sam, go live the life that I would choose for myself. And Sam eventually will tell Dean, basically, go live the life that I would choose for myself. You know, leave hunting, go live normal, have your apple pie life. And it's funny how both of them so completely lack an understanding of the other in these, I'm going to die, this is what I'm going to make my last wish for my sibling to be. Is more along the lines of, go live my life for me. And neither of them could ever be happy that way. And even in the end of the series, when Sam supposedly gets that what he would have wished for, being able to go just live a normal life, he's still miserable because he had changed so much since the pilot that that was no longer respite for him. That was no longer peace and contentedness for him. He seemed so friggin' miserable. Besides the point, again, I just can't see a universe where Dean would willingly completely disengage from hunting. And honestly, by the end of the series, I don't see a universe where Sam could just box up all that knowledge and information that he spent a lifetime earning and just put it on a shelf and ignore it in favor of white picket fence life. But that's neither here nor there. I just wanted to point out that Dean tells Sam in this scene, you'll keep hunting. You'll keep carrying on the family legacy. And that's not something Sam would have chosen for himself in this moment. It's something that he still has yet to earn for himself. But it makes it all the more painful to me what Sam asks of Dean in the season five finale to lay hunting aside as if that's the life that Dean would choose for himself or would ever have chosen for himself. Even going back to season one in Bugs, where he's like, man, I just couldn't live here. And it's a neighborhood that's very much like Lisa's, where he ends up going because Sam asked him to. Just so we're all clear on how misunderstood each brother is (laughs) to the other. (laughs) We get another use of screw you in the same episode. He doesn't want Dean worrying about him. 
He wants Dean to worry about himself. That's the whole problem, according to Sam, which on this point, I definitely agree with Sam. But if Dean was to do that, if he was to look any more closely at himself and to care about himself, he'd have to face what he's due. He'd have to face hell. He'd have to face the entire lack of a lifetime of self-worth that John instilled in him to make him believe that the only value his life could have is sacrificing it to save Sam's. He would have to confront the injustice of that, the horror of the life that he's led and the pointlessness of his self-sacrifice. And he can't, he cannot face that yet. He cannot face that he made this choice and now he's got to live with it. And Sam isn't even happy or grateful or the fact that he has to know that Sam would rather have reversed the deal, even though Dean would have felt like the ultimate failure if he hadn't made the deal. And neither of them understands the other on this point. But for Dean, there's a big reason why he cannot face this yet. He cannot admit it to himself yet. So instead, he just stares out the front window as he's driving along because that's all he has left that he can do here and talks about what he's going to do with our money in Atlantic City. And that's how the episode ends with Dean trying to put on that brave face yet again and Sam just looking absolutely indignant that Dean refuses to address this. And yeah, Sam, he can't address it. And it's not just that Dean doesn't care about himself. It's that he spent a lifetime being brainwashed into caring more about you and only feeling like a success if you are okay than anything ever having to do with himself. And we'll find out over the course of the series how many times Dean has literally sacrificed himself so that Sam would be okay. Frustrating and awful Yes, for both of them. Dean has had to suffer this his whole life, and Sam just has no clue. Even what little clues he's gotten. To him, that's in the past. That's that's no longer relevant anymore. And so, uh, it's frustrating to me as the viewer to know that, geez, Sam, you should have some inkling of this. And yeah, it's about five months after he made his deal. But still... They're no closer to finding a way out of Dean's deal than they were five months ago. And Sam is getting frustrated because to him, this should have a solution like every other problem they've ever had to confront. There should be a way to save Dean to get him out of this deal. And at this point, I think Sam is like, yeah, if I die, that's fine. Like that was the point of him confronting that crossroads demon last week that he was not afraid of that option being on the table. Even if it would kill Dean, Sam's like, well, this is just putting things back the way they should have been. The cosmos does not want that, Sam. The cosmos wants Dean in hell. We don't know why yet, but we will, and we'll understand. So much frustration. In another iteration of season three, where there was no writer's strike, This would have been another step on the ladder of Sam ramping up to do something awful in order to save Dean. But again, they run out of episodes. That storyline never comes to fruition. And instead, Dean ends up in hell. 
So that's really it for this week's episode. I think we've covered everything that we possibly could for an episode that's a one-off for the writer and director that they managed to still shove quite a bit of good character stuff in there for Sam and Dean. Doesn't really advance the myth arc plot. Doesn't really do anything to save Dean or bring Sam any closer to getting through to Dean. But it does give us Bella again, which is, to me, always interesting. Wish they had done more with her. Oh, well. It is what it is. Writer's strike. Meh. But we get so much good from the writer's strike, it's hard for me to complain about what it did to season three. (laughs) Because I think the show may have gone one more season without the writer's strike, but that probably would have been it. And we'll talk about that later. When we get to the writer's strike, we will talk about that for sure. Next week, we will be talking about season three, episode seven, Fresh Blood, where we'll get one more look at Gordon Walker. Sam gets to be absolutely ruthless, but we begin to see a fracture in Dean's facade of, yeah, I'm going to hell and nothing's going to stop that. We start to see them both breaking down just a little bit under the strain of that. And Dean start to confront his actual feelings about all of that. Finally, a little bit of a breaking point for them. We've already seen Dean go from the beginning of the season's attitude of, it's my dying wish, and everything was his dying wish, and trying to recapture any bit of joy he could out of life in whatever ways he knows how to wring happiness out of life to doing his job as best he could because that's all he really had left and everything else sort of rings hollow to him to, yeah, he's like ready to throw himself on the pyre again. And what that means, rather than face himself, he's going to face himself soon enough. But yes, next week's is the beginning of that reckoning. So hopefully everybody will come back and join me for that one. In the meantime... You can always reach me on Twitter and Tumblr, either at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge, or you can email me at MittensMorgul at Gmail, or you can find me on Discord. I'm Mittens, hashtag 4865, and I do still have the SPNGeorge server. It hasn't been very active lately because I keep forgetting to go over there and type weekly updates or anything, and... (laughs) But everybody is always welcome to join me there anytime and talk about whatever. Oh my god, yeah. This week, this past few weeks actually, I've been rereading an old fic of mine in which Bella is a character and I just hadn't read it in several years and thought, oh gosh, this one sounds like fun. And the comment I get the most on that fic I think might be, I kept waiting for her to do something evil and in the, it's an AU where Dean's an actor and she plays his agent in this story. And I always get asked, I thought she was going to be evil. And yet she kept sticking up for Dean and kept defending him and was like his best ally and, and advocate. And it's like, well, yeah, that's what she could have been. She could have taken all that snark that she directs towards Dean and used it to advocate for him, you know? And, you know, 
Dean's being threatened by outside forces that require him to need the assistance of a bodyguard who Bella hires Cass to make sure that the stalker that Dean has doesn't, you know, murder him in his sleep or whatever. (laughs) But throughout the story, not only Bella, but Becky as well plays her receptionist and and, uh, assistant. They both are so still in character, but instead of being antagonistic, they use their powers for good. And gosh, I wish the show had been able to do that more for Bella because Becky finally gets her comeuppance in season 15, but or at least she gets partial comeuppance and then gets disappeared. And we hope she came back, but golly, who even knows? So, mm. anyway, <laughs> I guess go read my like six or seven year old fic and enjoy this week. I don't know. Whatever. I'll link that in there too. (laughs) Why the hell not? Have a good one, everyone.